You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Colin Clark is a director at the Bush Institute, Southern Methodist University Economic Growth Initiative with the George W. Bush Institute. He leads the Institute's work on domestic economic policy and economic growth. I've gotten to know Colm recently. Uh, I was in Texas a, a couple of years ago. He invited me down. Uh, we've gotten to be pals and uh, have spent some time chatting. They've got a new report out called Cities and Opportunities in the 21st Century America. It's it's part of a larger series. And I said, Colm, I would love to have you on to chat about this. Welcome to the Strong Downs Podcast, Colm. Thanks, Chuck. It's great to be with you. Honored to be asked. Hey, you are in Dallas right now. From here in Minnesota, the reports that we're getting is that essentially Texas is a failed state. You're basically 48 hours away from cannibalism. How bad are <laughs> things down there? How are you doing? You got power? You got heat? Is everything okay? Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for asking about us. First of all, Chuck, we are doing okay. We lost power for two days, went over to my mother-in-law's house, who somehow managed to retain it, along with our uh, youngest daughter, a dog and a cat. And we did fine over there. Our power then came back on. But what we have seen is uh, there's a lot of chaos out there, a whole lot of our friends. Uh, by now, generally, the power's on, but in many cases, they have burst pipes because Texas just isn't ready for this sort of thing. And so the water's off. So we, we, we housed a couple uh, of our friends' daughters the last last couple days. You know, I think the place is pulling it together. Uh, tomorrow, it's going to be above freezing. And, uh, uh, you know, I think we'll, we'll, we'll pull it together. The Texas State Legislature is in session right now, and you can pretty well imagine the whole issue of winterizing the power grid is going to take over the discussion for a while. So it'll be interesting to see as the dust settles what we learn from this. It's interesting because as a Minnesotan, we're not too smug about many things, but one of the things we can be a little bit smug about is when wimpy people can't handle the weather. And I, I've actually been in Dallas when you got a foot of snow. It was like four, five, six years ago. And it was kind of comical because it was a snow day and everybody had fun. And this is serious though. And I've found no reason to be smug about this. This this is really impacting people's lives, isn't it? It is. I mean, as a, as a rule, uh, I think as you've observed traveling around the United States, Texas is bad at dealing with cold. We're actually arguably pretty good at dealing with extreme heat. So everyone has their strengths. It's serious. Look, we're clearly seeing what happens when uh, particularly there's a, there's a very large population of lower to moderate income people who are uh, kind of on the edge, don't have a mother-in-law's house that they can readily go to, as I did uh, with my family. So we have serious work ahead. There's, there's, there's no question. And we at the, at the Bush Institute, I mean, have to become more expert in this whole area because we would tend to argue there's a whole lot of work to be done ahead in creating essentially a more pro-opportunity built environment in our cities, in Texas and around America. And part of that clearly involves uh, keeping the power on. Right, right. Anytime there's something like this, and I, I think of the large hurricanes and flooding that was had in Houston, as an outsider, I think we have this tendency to rush in the zeitgeist with you know, the left of center narrative and the right of center narrative. There's been a little bit of that with this, you know, a little bit of glory. Your senator kind of stepped all over things a little bit for himself. 
Yes, he did. There does seem to be a case, as we transition to chatting about this report you put together, there does seem to be a, a case of centralized distributed power versus decentralized localized power. And the interesting thing is that that seems to cross some party lines or some some polarized lines that other issues don't cross as easily. I, I don't know if you have a thought on that before we move on. Uh, you know, Chuck, I'm going to I'm going to kind of dig into this and try to understand it better. What I can say right now is uh, in our inimitable American way, we have already figured out how to politicize this debacle in Texas with, uh, you know, people on the right saying it's, it's because of our actually nation leading reliance on uh, wind power and the wind turbines, as I think everybody in America knows now, we're in effect forced to stop turning. Uh, some oftentimes they just stop turning because the wind's not blowing this time. It was because of uh, ice. So that's the sort of the argument from the right. And the argument from the left is, is uh, no, no, no. Actually, uh, if you have wind power, you have to have, uh, you know, backup baseload capacity from other sources. And actually, uh, we didn't have those in, in, you know, sufficiently. So in effect, the regulators failed. And so there should be tougher regulation. So I don't know yet. I'm going to try to make sense of it. But uh, I'm, I'm looking for a good analysis. And if you come across something, let yeah. me know. Because uh, <laughs> the dust is going to be settling and people are going to be debating this. As we oftentimes find at the Bush Institute, I think there's kind of a shortage of uh, reasonable voices that aren't talking the usual partisan talking point. So, uh, so I would imagine we'll, uh, we'll be digging in. Yeah. Cities and Opportunity in 21st Century America is the title of the first in the series of opportunity that you're looking at, I want to start our conversation, and I think this will be ground that our audience is very familiar with, but I, I want to get your take. I want to talk about you know the George W. Bush Institute in the context of this, but the question is, why cities and why neighborhoods? Why is this something that is on the George W. Bush Institute's plate of things to, to push on? Sure, uh, Chuck. Well, there's a couple, I guess, 30,000 foot uh, points I can make about this. Uh, number one, I think we at the Bush Institute are very much persuaded that America needs a fresh discussion, fresh analysis, fresh ideas of the whole challenge of expanding opportunity and economic mobility in our country. On the whole, there's plenty that's gone right. There's, there's too much that hasn't gone right in recent years. And in general, I think we, we just feel called on to, to, to think seriously about what it means to create a more inclusive model of capitalism, a market economy that works for as many Americans as possible. The second big observation is that, you know, at the Bush Institute, Chuck, I think we sort of have it in our DNA to look for and celebrate successes. Uh, to suppose that within our country and in other countries, there are good leaders out there, there are good ideas out there, and we should be looking for those. So the thing that really captured me, I think, is this abundant evidence uh, that where you are in, in, in space, you know, what city you're in, what neighborhood you're in, even so powerfully influences your prospects in life. I think we all know that that's kind of, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of research behind that from Harvard economist Raj Shetty, most famously, but a lot of other people. I look at that fact and basically say, well, not, not to suggest that any one place is nirvana, but some places seem to be doing at least pretty well. And actually, when you look into the data, you find that some places in America are probably doing better 
in terms of creating opportunity and economic mobility for their people, probably than any other place in the world. So again, no place is perfect, but we have lessons to learn. So when we kind of dig into the uh, into the data and conclude, look, when there's there's so much variety across America in how we're performing on many metrics that we have looked at, well, that suggests that there's a whole lot of local barriers. A whole lot of places aren't sort of getting the message about how to do things better. You and Strong Towns have been out there putting out a pretty powerful message. We're fans. We want to join in our voice and putting out a message about how to do things better as well. So, so why cities? As your listeners will know, 82% of the American people live in metropolitan areas. We are largely an urban or more, more accurately, a metropolitan uh, nation. Uh, so when we talk about this huge variety, yes, there are urban versus rural divides. Uh, I'm happy to talk about rural, although I'm not, I'm not as knowledgeable about rural areas, but we have at least thought about them some. But most of the variety that counts is comparing some cities to other cities and indeed some neighborhoods to other neighborhoods. So we want to look for the lessons from the places that are working best and try to sort of champion, first of all, make clear what the ideas are and distill them, articulate clearly what other places need to get right to do better. One of the stated goals in the report is to create more cities of opportunity. I found this idea of a city of opportunity to be an interesting one. Thinking big picture of this as a nation, I think one of the things that we see people coming from all different kinds of perspectives and places talk about is they want more opportunity for people. What exactly is a city of opportunity and, and how does that manifest in terms of, you know, people's lives and, and what people would experience in a city of opportunity versus a city that uh, is short on that kind of, uh, of approach? My approach in coming up with that, using that term, a little bit of a loaded term, I, I, I understand, is that, you know, maybe it's not the most helpful thing to compare how this or that city is doing relative to some sort of impossible nirvana ideal, because if every place is falling so far short of it, the gap seems insurmountable. It becomes kind of a council for despair, and we, we want to be a voice of hope. So what is the city of opportunity? Well, I think what we've done in this in this report is to try to kind of dig into data and to get pretty explicit about what about some measures that we think uh, can be used to define what would be at least in relative terms a city of opportunity. So we, we arrived at three uh, data points that we think are reasonable proxies for essentially what would be a, relatively speaking, a city of opportunity. Number one is a measure of uh, basically standard of living. We borrowed the uh, methodology from our friends at the Urban Reform Institute, uh, another think tank we collaborated with a lot. But the basic idea is just median income levels overall, and then median in various specific groups adjusted for local cost of living, uh, recognizing the cost of living, as you know, vary enormously across American cities. And not just to look at the overall population, but specific populations, the black population, the Hispanic population, the population with specific levels of uh, educational attainment, like people who have an associate's degree, for example. So that's one. It's just are the standards of living relatively high for ordinary people. A city of opportunity should be a place I'd say almost by definition, in which uh, if you know if you work hard, you can have a relatively good standard of living. Second uh, measure is the uh, measure developed by Raj Chetty's organization, Opportunity Insights, and I think as a lot of your listeners will know, Chetty and his colleagues looked at essentially uh, the upward mobility measured as the adult income level 
of people who grew up in a specific place. So a place is a high is a high upward mobility place in their in their system. If the people who grew up there have gone who started from relatively modest means have gone on to uh, to experience good upward mobility in their life wherever they live. So it has a whole lot to do with the circumstances in which they grew up. And I think that's a, a pretty intelligent uh, uh, way of going about it. So we're looking at that, too. But then a third approach is to look at where people are actually voting with their feet moving in America in terms of particularly domestic migration from one metropolitan area to others. And the idea here is that, you know, look, individuals can move uh, from one place to another for all kinds of reasons, but large numbers of people aren't stupid, right? When there's a great big flow of people from one place to another, you can pretty well bet the destination place on the whole is a higher opportunity place, a better place to, you know, to work, save, build a business, raise a family, et cetera, than the places they move from in their judgment. So we're looking closely at those uh, migration data as well. So so what then would be a city of opportunity? A city of opportunity in our simple rendering would be a place that is relatively good on all those things, a place in which um, uh, in which the, the, the people who are, you know, pursuing the American dream there, if you will, are relatively speaking successful and achieving a relatively high standard of living where uh, kids who grow up there do relatively well in economic terms and uh, that people are uh, seeking out and moving to. And I think a big takeaway from all this, this study is we certainly don't have nirvana anywhere in America. We actually have very few places that actually score quite high on all those measures. What we have instead is a lot of different patterns of cities of opportunity. So we have we have places that are really good on one or two of those measures, but less so on another. And it varies in, in really interesting ways, oftentimes in pretty geographically oriented ways that maybe we can talk about, uh, you know, as a, as a Texan speaking with a Minnesotan. Uh, the patterns are very, <laughs> very different. What we do in this report is we identify uh, roughly 60 metropolitan areas. The data is better at the level of metropolitan areas than individual cities, but roughly 60 that are clear outperformers. And we're trying to learn lessons from the outperformers. And we're also recognizing that within the outperformers, there's many patterns that we don't just have a sort of one single path to being a city of opportunity, that there's multiple ways to get there. And some places that are actually scoring relatively high are uh, they're not the places everybody talks about all the time. When people talk about like the, you know, star cities on the coast, San Francisco and D.C. and so forth, we do count those as cities of opportunity. They make our list. But so do places like Sioux Falls, South Dakota and Lincoln, Nebraska and a lot of other other places that are maybe less obvious. Let's drill into that for a sec, because I, if I had to summarize in, in a word what you're describing as a city of opportunity, to me, the word would be dynamism. And, and that's kind of one of those maybe overused words. I, I like the way that you've approached this, and I feel like the, the actual metrics have a lot of deep meaning to them. But as you say, there really is no place that is wholly dynamic in terms of it's attracting people. If you're there, you you have these, you know, upward opportunities and it's also providing, you know, those high median income levels. You get a San Francisco and a San Francisco to me is one of these places where you can live a very high quality of life, but it's also in, in some parts, very static and almost, uh, exclusive where it's it's tough to have that it's tough to get in and get started and and then move up you can certainly enjoy a high quality of living if you're there and can afford to be there i look at a place like sioux falls for example i think you know maybe like the quality of life as some people would measure it maybe isn't there i've been to sioux falls i like it a lot 
But the, the one thing about Sioux Falls that's true is that you can go there with relatively little and you can experience, you know, the upward mobility kind of, I feel like the traditional promise of America, right? Where you can start with nothing and, and kind of work your way up. Can you highlight a few of these cities that stand out for you that, that may not be the, the standard ones that people would look at? And, and, and what is it about them that stand out? I write this in the first report, and I'm now working on a second report that takes a more historical view, talks about kind of the rise and fall of dynamism in, in cities, in history, and in recent American history in particular. In these reports, I argue, if you want your city to be a city of opportunity, there's a number of things you clearly should get right. And we, we assemble data that basically, I think, the data support they basically confirm what you would think of as fairly common sense ideas that to, to be a city of opportunity, a city should do a really good job of educating its young people. I mean, the link between education and all of the metrics that we're looking at is obvious, undeniable, and there's huge variety in how well cities do in educating their young people, cities, states, et cetera. So you want to educate your young people. You want to be a relatively friendly place for commerce, a place where, you know, businesses want to be rather than they rather than want to flee and run away. You want to, I would say, accomplish two things that sometimes people think of as kind of at loggerheads. And I think this is this is sort of a deep subject. Maybe we can explore a little bit more in the conversation. On the one hand, you want to be what social scientists call a place of high social capital. So high interconnectedness and trust among people, high civic engagement by citizens, people taking an interest in their neighbor, taking an interest in, you know, in the well-being of like kids across the across the community. There's a lot of things we could say about social capital. On the other hand, you also want to be a place that's very welcoming to newcomers. I think history overwhelmingly suggests, as does our, our own data, you want to be a place that welcomes the outsider, welcomes the immigrant, welcomes uh, historically people from different ethnic groups, different religious groups, and so forth, because oftentimes they bring a great deal of dynamism to a place. So I think sometimes there's the thought that those two things run a little bit counter, that it may be a very homogeneous place that doesn't have a whole lot of newcomers coming from outside, may score really high for social capital, and the places that are highly diverse, very welcoming to, to newcomers from the outside, uh, may not. Our data suggests that it's not easy to score high in both those things, but it does happen in some places. So those are things you'd want to get right. That's kind of a backdrop. Now let me talk about specific places. Let's just for fun talk about a contrast, a three-way contrast between where I live in the big cities of Texas, I'm in Dallas, but the same thing basically applies to the Houston area, San Antonio and Austin. And secondly, kind of where you live in Minnesota, and uh, we could maybe extend that to states right next door, such as South Dakota or North Dakota, for that matter, where also, like, for example, Fargo, as well as uh, Sioux Falls in South Dakota, scores, scores as a city of opportunity in our, in our system. And then thirdly, let's talk about San Francisco as the quintessential coastal superstar, as, as some authors would call it. Well, what's interesting is that we, we all do a slightly different mix of those things well. No place is totally nailing it. So you could say, like, well, what can we say about San Francisco? Well, San Francisco is a very, very productive place. There's no question about that. It's given rise to so much of the tech industry. And San Francisco is also scores off the charts high for welcoming newcomers from all over the world. This is where smart tech people go more than any place else. And even today, even when the when there's a lot of outbound migration of people who grew up there, largely because they can't afford the housing, even though they're still seeing a pretty large inflow of immigrants from around the world who have tech dreams, 
and bring a lot of ongoing dynamism to the place. So they get those things right. On the other hand, the San Francisco area and the, the whole Silicon Valley area, really, and pretty much most of the west of the uh, California coastline, has, has really created uh, enormous problems in their housing market, deeply dysfunctional housing markets that are vastly more expensive, uh, more out of reach for ordinary people, anyone who's not a you know, kind of a tech mogul or very, very highly compensated person, then bigger problems than essentially anywhere else in the United States. So when you essentially can't afford to live there, then kind of by definition, the standard of living for an ordinary person is is low and people vote with their feet. They leave. That's what's happening. So I don't know whether to call San Francisco a static place at all, because there's actually huge turnover in who's living there. And it may well be they're even willing to accept the trade there that they, in a sense, have now, in effect, driving out there you know, they're working and middle class and bringing in tech minded people from around the world. I don't know. But the net result is it is a city of opportunity for some kinds of people. But it's uh, and it certainly counts as that in our data. But on the other hand, it actually has some pretty big problems for kind of moderate income uh, people above all because of its housing challenges. Then you take a big Texas city. If you think about Dallas or Houston, even think about some of our very high growth suburban areas, which I would call uh, hotspots of uh, as cities of opportunity. Some of the fastest growing um, cities in the in the United States or really anywhere in the world. Well, there's some things we absolutely get right. Uh, the big Texas cities, uh, particularly in the suburban areas, score really high for being sort of business and commerce friendly. They score really high for uh, being growth friendly in a way that has allowed housing affordability to remain better than in most other places. Uh, They also actually, I think a lot of people outside Texas wouldn't really know this, but they actually score really high for managing to do pretty well on the social capital side and exceedingly well on the welcoming newcomers side. They're very, very diverse places, big foreign born populations from, from essentially all over the world, uh, particularly in like the North Texas, the, the suburbs North of Dallas and Fort Worth, the suburbs uh, northwest and south of Houston are some of the most diverse like suburban cities anywhere in the in the United States. They also, by the way, have very rapid growth in black and Hispanic populations, uh, people who were were maybe born in the core city, but have moved to the suburbs seeking opportunity. So they're, they're getting a lot of things right. On the other hand, the Texas cities on the whole, Texas metropolitan areas on the whole, don't actually do that well compared to, to a lot of uh, cities elsewhere in educating their young people. And that's a major problem. But now, now I think a, a well-off uh, a kid who comes with every advantage, they're going to probably get as good an education in, in big Texas cities as they would anywhere else. But we're, we are talking about a massive population of low to moderate income people who I think on the whole uh, don't get as well educated in Texas cities. Now, that, now, thirdly, let's consider, you know, cities in like, you know, big city like Minneapolis, St. Paul area or smaller places like St. Cloud or Sioux Falls is kind of in between, or uh, Fargo, you know, what you see there is actually you see on these social capital measures, cities in your neck of the woods, Chuck, score off the charts high, the best in America, easily. They score really, really high on Chetty's, on the Opportunity Insights measure of upward mobility for people who grow up there. I would argue that they that they are probably among the best places in the world on those kinds of uh, measures. Uh, they you can't see my face beaming right now because this is actually what we take huge pride in. But keep going. <laughs> well, as well you as well you should. I mean, this is this is a great success story, and also the education levels score score super high. I would argue that the region that you're in, the cities of 
of uh, the northern Great Plains, if that's, if that's how we think of it, and over on over to the mountain states, the northern mountain states from Colorado, Utah, et cetera, have actually done a uh, about as good a job as any place in the United States at squaring that circle that I mentioned earlier of being a very, very high social capital places, but also pretty welcoming to newcomers. They're reasonably uh, business and commerce friendly. They're reasonably growth friendly. So housing is quite affordable. Standards of living are high. There's a lot of good. So you could say, well, what are the what are the challenges? Well, it, you know, it's interesting. I've now gotten to know you and gotten to know a number of other uh, friends in um, in Minnesota. And one thing that's just a very common theme that people always bring up that because Minnesota cities have a history of being pretty homogeneous places in ethnic terms, it would appear that uh, there's been maybe greater challenges in a, num- in a number of other places around America in basically, uh, you could say, creating a, um, a multi-ethnic society that sort of works well for everyone, social capital that crosses racial lines. So one thing that's really kind of remarkable, for example, is like the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, by the standards of really big metropolitan areas, scores really well in almost everything else we look at, but it actually scores below average in a variety of upward mobility measures for black citizens. Let me give you a, a local adage that I've heard. Actually, my, my priest said this, but I've, I've heard other people say it too. In Minnesota, we will wave at you and smile and say hi and be very friendly, but we're not going to welcome you into our house. That's the difference. It's funny that you say that because I, I do think you're onto something. I, the data is playing out in a way that kind of, you know, maybe reinforces some stereotypes, but I think that the places that you've described so far, I, I feel like it's the data is showing something that is very real too. Well, I think so. I mean, we've tried to be very, uh, very data driven. I think our data points to things that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily naturally think of. Uh, yes, they would all get if they follow American cities, they would know that San Francisco is an extraordinarily diverse place, uh, probably about as welcoming as newcomers from the outside, ethnically diverse newcomers, immigrants from Asia and so forth, as you could possibly imagine. I think they might not necessarily know that very high growth Texas suburban cities like uh, Allen or Frisco, Texas, or Sugarland or the Woodlands in the Houston area actually probably are among the better places, probably among the best performing places in America at welcoming newcomers from all over the country and all over the world and creating, you know, school systems that work in a very multi-ethnic way and get very good results and very, very racially diverse workforces that seem to be to run very, very well. So it it seems like they're kind of good at being sort of, you know, medium sized cities, oversized towns that still kind of think like towns that are strong towns, to use your your term. But where, in effect, the, you know, the faces who are at at the school board meeting, for example, are very diverse faces and everyone kind of is on board with the program of making the schools great. Uh, So they actually score quite high for that. I think a lot of people don't really realize that. I also think a lot of people probably from outside, from elsewhere in the uh, country, and I would include myself prior to doing all this research, don't actually get just what a massive set of outperformers, the Minnesota cities, the, the cities in the Dakotas and so forth are on these measures of social capital and upward mobility. There's a lot of stories to be told. There's a lot of things to be learned from all these places. Uh, so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to uh, study all these places, understand the data, but not just don't not just stop at numbers, get to know people, hear stories, uh, read great sources like Strong Towns and other people who are writing like on the ground about what's happening in specific places and try to understand uh, 
you know, the places that are getting this or that thing right, what what can we learn from that? And I mean, you I've, I've learned a lot from what you've written about about creating a I, I like to call it a pro opportunity built environment, I like to actually build a city that will be good for people. I'm thinking about that a lot. And, uh, you know, we could talk about that if you'd like. I think that's uh, that's kind of something that, that's a, kind of high on my plate in 2021. Let me dig a little bit into the commerce part of this. I want to preface it with this, and I, I want you to push back on this if you disagree. I feel like one of the things that you and I have in common, and, and really the, the place you work for and the place I work for have in common, is that we're aware of the kind of partisan nature of things, but we really try hard to almost discipline ourselves to not only not be part of it, but to kind of uh, get outside of what our normal inclinations might be. I'm a fairly conservative oriented kind of person, but I, I, I kind of go out of my way to expose myself to progressive thinkers and progressive ideas. And, and I, I kind of discipline myself to not reject them you know, I've always gotten that sense from you personally, but I also get that sense from, you know, the work that you're doing. Is is that a fair way to kind of frame things? Very much so, Chuck. I, I am really fortunate to work for a place, the George W. Bush Institute, that is, you know, if you if you were in there with me and if we were kind of op- open for normal business and walking the halls and introducing you to people, you would see, I mean, this is a place where not only are we in, you know, officially nonpartisan, but there is an ethos, there's a DNA in the place that is just relentlessly focused on trying to be high-minded, problem-solving, to truly recognize that to, to arrive at something that we might call a, a, you know, kind of approaching wisdom, you really do have to listen to all kinds of voices and try to learn from all kinds of people, that partisan talking points are, a, are an intellectual dead end that aren't going to lead to progress for, for anybody that's kind of in the DNA of the place. I mean, when we periodically brief President Bush, you know, I, I can tell you, it never, it never comes up what would be good for Republicans or something like that. It always comes up what's right. How do we actually articulate some kind of vision that actually would, would help solve problems and, you know, create a better world? That's, that's what we're all trying to do. We're very, very turned off by the hyper polarization that is all around us. If you're like you and me, and I agree, you're obviously that way. I like to think I am very much trying to have the discipline. And it does take discipline, to use your word, to sort of screen a lot of that out and listen to a lot of voices and try to really aspire for some kind of something approaching wisdom or insight. You know, if you are that way, it sure helps if you can actually kind of work in a milieu that uh, where that's the norm. So I do. I think you've created one that is a strong town. So well done. Uh, so yeah, that's that's what we're that's what we're doing. You wanted to talk about commerce, you said. I appreciate you taking the time to do that preface because what I want to ask you has like a partisan tinge to it, and I want people to hear it. I, I want people to hear this question not as a partisan question, but as an intellectual question. So when I travel to large cities, and I I have been fortunate enough to spend a lot of time in, in large cities. I also live in a very small town. When I travel to large cities, they they are dominated, and you see this in the election results, they're dominated by progressive politics and progressive thinking and, you know, progressive candidates. But I find on the ground in terms of commerce, the greatest level of local business, of local entrepreneurship, of local startups, I see a broader commercial diversity of places if I want to eat local food, if I want to eat, you know, local beer, local whatever, if I want to participate in a, a local business economy, I'm more likely to do that in 
one of the boroughs of New York than I am in, you know, Frisco or, or Plano or, you know, one of these other. So if, if I go to a Frisco or a Plano, or if I go to Brainerd, Minnesota, where I'm from, we tend to have more conservative politics. We tend to talk a lot about opportunity and businesses and less government regulation, but man, everything here seems influenced by, you know, from our development pattern to the businesses we have, the economy we have, tends to be very centralized and top down and kind of centrally managed. It's almost like the opposite from an, a commerce and economic standpoint than what we say we would desire. This is a, a weird question and I'm not going to hold you to any like firm answer, but I, I wonder as you look at these measures of commerce and combine them with measures of opportunity, are, are there surprising things that jump out at you of, of what places, you know, have what types of mobility or opportunity? It, I feel like in some of the suburbs around Dallas, if you're a, uh, if you're a poor person, you could certainly, you know, get a job at Walmart. Like those kind of things are going to be available. Could you start your own business in Frisco? Could you start your own business in Allen? I, you might have to have a high amount of capital. I feel like there are neighborhoods in the core of Dallas where you actually could do that without a lot of startup money, just because there's more dynamism there. Can you talk about that? Am I onto something or is that showing up anywhere? How do you relate to that? I think you are. I think you are. I, I do want to, I think this is, it's a deep question and you and I'll probably be talking about this for years to come together, yeah, yeah. how you, how you create dynamism in places in very specific places. And I think that, uh, uh, coming back to something we both have been saying, if anybody imagines that there's a simple set of partisan talking points to answer that question, they're fooling themselves. Let me make a general observation, uh, and then we can try to apply it to a place or two. I would argue that the places, whether it be a, a city or a specific area within a city, that have created a sense of true local authenticity that are an interesting place to go, that has a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, but notes around interesting place to go, a, pla a place where people would want to be because yeah, like earlier, you said something about like eating the local food and eating the local beer. I think the one place where I actually ate the local beer was in Ireland. <laughs> I, 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 I'm I, not, I'm not a beer drinker. So that kind of just came out. Uh, like I know there's local. Uh, no, 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 <laughs> I'm not as much of a beer guy, but I do like a good craft beer here and there. But the point is uh, when you talk about, um, uh, you know, places that feel like they genuinely have a local you know, there's something that is distinctive about the place. It's a real sense of place that people are kind of proud that it is the way it is. And it's not like every other place. So we all know there are a lot of places like that. We've all visited them and we know there's a whole lot of places. I would argue a significant majority of all places in the United States that aren't that way at all. Here's a very simple observation, totally nonpartisan. And I'm sure the data would back it up. The places that actually have managed to create a reasonable degree of authenticity and local flair are doing better economically than the vast majority of other places. That inherently is a place of greater dynamism. I'm quite confident that's true. So then the, obviously that raises the question about which direction the arrow of causality goes. You know, is it the, the fact that it's doing better economically, that it's, is that it makes it able to afford to essentially, you know, support the local places that may have a little bit different cost structure than the national chain, for example, or is it that the, you know, that the commitment to keeping things feeling and looking in a certain way, you know, kind of a local experience in turn makes it more prosperous. My heart is in the latter argument. 
that they manage to some kind of local pride, local, you know, maybe to a certain degree, it's local rules by, you know, government, but to a certain degree, it's probably also essentially just how the local entrepreneurs, how the, you know, real estate developers and the just local business community, even the nonprofit community, how it thinks about its town or it's even its neighborhood. But I'm, I'm kind of willing to concede that probably the arrows to a certain degree go both way and that it is not impossible, but it's hard to produce an interesting, distinctive, authentic local place where people want to be when income levels are low. But I'm not willing to concede that it's impossible. So I would suggest like a, a place I've been to uh, spent a lot of time is in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and in some surrounding areas there. Downtown Santa Fe, the Santa Fe Plaza is totally unique, completely distinctive. It couldn't you couldn't possibly mistake it for someplace in Minnesota or upstate New York or something. Santa Fe Plaza is a pretty wealthy place, but there's also kind of, you know, little, much less wealthy communities around the state of New Mexico that are distinctive in their own way. And in some cases, they've actually they've, they've sort of created many Santa Fe's, you know, they've created places where people want to be, you know, that have thriving uh, tourism markets, second home markets and so forth. And you're right, I'd like to look for evidence all over the, the country. But I really do think that kind of going out of your way to create that sense of local place has really significant economic benefits in terms of people wanting to wanting to be there. You know, so you can say, well, how do you do that? I suspect that a very simple answer of the government simply tries to micro-regulate the use of every single square foot of uh, local land to try to engineer that outcome. I, I suspect that's likely to fail. To get there, it has to be something that the whole community buys into, a vision that, yes, government does its part, but so does local business. You know, I would argue that if, to get there, uh, this kind of vision, uh, you probably have to be a pretty pretty good place to start a small business. So in other words, like if there's some local potential, you know, some chef who was, has a dream of starting her own restaurant, you need to be a place where that's actually viable and not there, there there's not sort of impossible obstacles to it. Because I would argue that if the obstacles to setting up a, you know, a local kind of mid-price restaurant are really, really high, then most likely the restaurant industry will be dominated by giant companies who are the best able to, uh, you know, to sort of operate at that cross structure. I think back to Santa Fe, for example. So we, my family has a small investment that we're very proud of in a hotel just right next to the Santa Fe Plaza called the La Fonda, which is actually a little factoid here for your listeners. It's not, it's not the oldest hotel building, but it's the oldest continually operating hotel site in America. There's a whole bunch of first floor retail space in the La Fonda. And those are great little businesses that have been around in some cases passed down through generations by local entrepreneurs uh, selling all manner of local wares. There's not a national chain in there. Uh, well, you know, why is that? Probably because the um, over several you know, rounds of ownership over decades, the people who own the La Fonda were part of a local vision about what the Santa Fe Plaza should be like. And they just weren't that interested in having something that would make it feel like everywhere else. So you asked, you asked about like Plano, Frisco, Allen, and so forth. You know, here's what I would say, Chuck, is that I, I think you're probably, it's probably pretty fair to say that those are probably places that uh, have a whole lot of chain businesses and are to some degree struggling to have that feel of local authenticity. Partly that comes from growing from really small size 
really, really fast. I mean, there's now um, uh, in just Collin and Denton counties, the two biggest suburban counties north of Dallas and Fort Worth. Uh, they're just now this year or maybe late last year crossing the two million people mark. I mean, this has been explosive growth. When you kind of grow that fast, probably a lot of things happen that you then sort of look back and you think, uh, hmm, uh, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't mind if we'd uh, maybe sort of done a little bit things a little bit differently on this or that front. I will say that all of those cities all have, they're all thoughtful about it. They're all trying to create an, you know, improving, continually improving sense of place to create real like town centers that are walkable and interesting and create some kind of local field. So they're working at it. But then you asked about the core city of Dallas and and here where I think let's, let's sort of home in on my hometown here because so we, we have a giant challenge in Dallas, but I also think it's a giant opportunity and you and I have discussed it. The southern part of our city, southern Dallas, broadly defined, uh, you can define it by a set of zip codes. I've also defined it as the nine southernmost of, out of our 14 city council districts. This is a vast area. It's bigger in physical extent than the size of than the whole city of Atlanta. It has uh, more than 800,000 people living in it, including something on the order of 650,000 black and Hispanic people. And it's overwhelmingly low income. It clearly is suffering essentially like very little new housing built, very few businesses started. The total number of jobs has actually declined this century, even though the population living in, the, in this region has gone somewhat up. So Southern Dallas is a reproach to, you know, whenever the people of the greater Dallas area sort of pat themselves on the back about how well the area is doing, Southern Dallas is sort of the, uh, the thing that they'd rather not be reminded of. So this is a real challenge. Where do you even start? And I think, you know, you helped me to see, and I, a, a lot of local people have as well. So is it a challenge? Yes. Is it a giant opportunity? Of course. Uh, because if you start to think about what are the prospects for building essentially new urban areas in Southern Dallas that are distinctive to the place, culturally interesting, where people would actually want to be, I think they're terrific. I think they're really good. So just to give a couple, try to put a little concreteness around that. I think one thing that has been that sort of the time has come in a number of cities, particularly in the southern part of the United States, is places that are, take this with the goodwill in which it's intended, black or Hispanic downtowns. Okay. So local kind of walkable, interesting urban destination places that really are, in some sense, celebrating the local heritage of particular communities. Now, in Dallas, it's easy to see that we have a black population that goes back, obviously, uh, to you know the times of uh, slavery and has, a, on the one hand, a very, very painful uh, history of um, racism and oppression. On the other hand, it also actually has a history of a lot of creativity, all kinds of art, artistic, musical heritage, uh, local businesses that got started decades ago and have, are still hanging in there. There's all kinds of interesting heritage there. The Hispanic heritage in Dallas is somewhat newer, but now we're talking about more than 40 percent of the uh, of the uh, people of the population of the city of Dallas is Hispanic. There are heavily, heavily Hispanic areas. I would argue a huge potential to turn into um, places that are distinctively, you know, Hispanic Texas. And these kinds of places, they don't they don't have to be upscale, fancy neighborhoods. They don't have to be, you know, fully gentrified, if you will. They need some help to really come into being. Uh, I oftentimes argue locally or try to make the case locally. I sort of proselytize a lot, as I know you do, 
that there's great assets to build around. There's some there's some neighborhood centers that already kind of cry out for further investment because there's already some some local uh, dynamism in the neighborhood. Plus, there are some uh, I think really fast growing effective institutions that can play a role. For example, in education and higher in the higher ed world. We have some of the like one of the fastest growing university campuses in the United States is the University of North Texas at Dallas, uh, which started only in, I think, 2009 and has grown explosively. It's like four or five thousand undergraduates now and growing very, very fast, overwhelmingly commuters from very nearby neighborhoods, heavily black and Hispanic. Well, in the immediate vicinity of that, by the way, the campus is beautiful. Big view of downtown Dallas in the distance in far southern Dallas. I, I spoke uh, there. It was all- great. Yeah, it's great. It's a terrific. It's a terrific looking place. It's kind of up on a big hill. You can look and see the downtown in the distance. We have a, a kind of light rail system here. There's a station right there next to the uh, campus. But when you look at all in all directions from the campus, if you look at where's the nearby, you know, mixed income housing, where's the nearby local, the, the retail or the restaurant or the bars or whatever, the coffee shops, a local player, you know, that might actually appeal to the thousands of people who are at University of North Texas at Dallas every day. You don't see it. That's a total, that's a big failure, but it's also a giant opportunity. And the same thing could be said for several other increasingly successful uh, institutions that could be the kind of the nucleus for some really interesting neighborhoods. So if we think about it, like, you know, what would you do? To cre- I mean, I want to keep on conferring with you about this, Chuck, in time, in, in you know, months and years to come, because it's a, it's a project of many years. But if you think about what could you do in these kind of neighborhoods, well, land is still pretty cheap. You've been down there. So you, you, when you go around large parts of southern Dallas, including close to the University of North Texas at Dallas, it's amazing how low the human density is. It's, a, it's just shocking how much empty land there is. You, you can easily imagine a lot of new things getting built that don't displace anyone. Uh, you know, you could, you could easily imagine the place just becoming bit by bit, small bets, your term. Little improvements here and there that make that that create a radical improvement in the livability and the quality of life in some of these uh, areas. And before long, it becomes that much more possible to have the, you know, really authentic local coffee shop, the local restaurant, the local bar, the whatever it is. You know, the land is there. There's certainly a pretty big population of uh, people who are really, you know, hungry for more quality of life in the neighborhood. They're proud of their neighborhoods. They want them to be better not looking to give up and leave. There's a lot of opportunity. So I, I totally agree. Uh, those places, they, they kind of cry out for the authentic sense of local place. Like they kind of already have it, but they just need a big injection of dynamism. I do feel like at the end of the day, the way to frame a neighborhood like that is to just recognize that a 10% increase in property values across the line is a really good return on your portfolio. If you can do that year after year, you're not, you know, taking that $10,000 or $50,000 property and making it 2 million. Uh, what you're doing is you're taking that $50,000 property and making it 55,000 and that's not displacing anyone but it is building wealth, right? It is creating uh capacity, right? I I totally agree with that. Like let me make both a uh, kind of a classic economist point and then a bit of I'll sort of venture away from my economist job and a little bit of a cultural point, okay? The economist point agree with you a hundred percent. If you see just the evidence in, in some of these Southern Dallas neighborhoods of a little bit of, you know, small bets paying off a little bit of improvement here and there, 
drastically change the incentives to either, you know, step up and buy a home or to invest in the home that you already have, right? When you change the incentives a little, it can have really powerful effects. One thing that's really striking about Southern Dallas is there's very, very low homeownership levels. You know, and I would argue that, yes, I mean, low, low income tends to go hand in hand with low, low ownership. But I would also argue that, uh, that considering we're talking overwhelmingly about a landscape of small single family homes, the fact that so many of them are uh, not owner occupied comes as a bit of a shock to economist eyes. You know, and I think part of that reflects the, the, the reality that heretofore, not, not only have the people in many cases not had, you know, a lot of spare money to speak of, but they uh, also haven't had a very powerful incentive to invest. It's sort of a game theory situation. You know, when you're when you're trying to make the, the decision what to do with a spare dollar, you know, the hard-earned dollar, you don't have that many spare ones to start with, about whether to put some kind of money in your house, you look around and see whether everyone else is putting a little bit of money in their house. Because only in the, only if they are, does it actually look like a rational decision a lot of the time. So I think that there is a, a kind of an opportunity to to sort of shift the incentives a little bit in ways that would really, um, really pay off. But there's a cultural point as well. When I have spent time uh, with a lot of uh, people, most of them black or Hispanic in uh, Southern Dallas, again, what I see is uh, when I talk with people, uh, quite, quite a few friends who, you know, who live in, in various parts of, the, of Southern Dallas, they're proud of their neighborhood. They want it to be better. But oftentimes uh, there's sort of a lack of confidence that it ever will happen. The cultural point is this. Uh, I think building, you know, strong towns within Southern Dallas, like strong neighborhoods that will feel like really cohesive communities that are going to have each other's back, that are supporting each other and, real, you know, and so forth. Everything we'd want to see. They need some hope. There has to be some confidence, not just not just sort of confidence that values are going to go up, but like confidence that. Uh, no, there's a that, there's that, a payoff be, for your effort, right? Yeah, there's a payoff both in the sense of uh, that your actual net worth will go up, but there's also a sense that the community will become a better place. It will be a place where you'd love for your children to live long term when they grow up. Uh, a place where if they if the children manage to you know go go to college and get a kind of middle income or higher job that they'd actually want to live in the neighborhood rather than, you know, escape from it. And I think people are, are, are yearning for that. I think people, uh, they, they want to see their neighborhoods become like that. They're, they're, they're sort of this uh, very strong desire and, you know, maybe a lot of confusion about how to get there on the part of like, not just them, the part of everyone, part of city authorities, the business community and so forth. But, you know, this is what, this is why we're doing this program, Chuck, is we're, we're trying to, you know, listen a lot, search, think, listen to data, listen to interesting case studies and examples. I share your conviction that better communities, communities that are, have more economic dynamism and more opportunity uh, can arise in these areas that too often have been uh, left behind. I really wanted to ask you before we're done, because you have a, a statement in there about home ownership and how home ownership, I'll read the actual quote, you quote, home ownership has trended downward among vulnerable populations since 2005. And the thing that strikes me about that quote is that since 2005, we've really had a national economic obsession with home ownership and propping up home values and subsidizing home market and keeping people in homes. And whether it's, you know, manifested through the bond market where we've had securitized debt obligations and all these programs designed to basically prop up housing as a way to benefit the broader economy. 
it seems to me like your observation, which I think is very true, and even this conversation that we've been having the last like 10 minutes about opportunity and, and small business startups and home ownership and neighborhoods, are we ready to say that the American version of prosperity through kind of like centralized top-down home ownership programs is just not working for people, particularly, you know, people who we would call these vulnerable populations? Gosh, that's a, that's a really good question, Chuck. Good, because we have 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, okay. Like, I've had a lot of debates with friends about this. I think that the, the goal of helping more people to realize their dream of becoming homeowners and building generational wealth that can be passed down that that remains a valid uh, goal. It should be among the uh, goals, but we have completely messed it up. We have pursued it in the worst possible ways because the whole effect of federal, state, and local policy, the most powerful effect, has been to push up housing prices far faster than income levels for low to moderate income people. So the negative effect on would-be potential home buyers from much, much higher prices uh, has far outweighed any kind of help we provide through this, you know, panoply of uh, federal policies that supposedly are trying to help. We've made a mess of it. We have a lot of work to do on that front. But, you know, I'm not ready to abandon the idea. When I go out and talk to people, I'm not I'd never say that homeownership is for everyone, but there are a whole lot of people who sure would like to uh, own their own home and to try to build wealth that way, not only that way. And it's out of reach. They can't possibly even make the down payment. That's a huge policy failure. I feel like our policy is, you know, leave no upper middle class family behind in, in terms of housing policy, but it really is not. I know the the term bootstrapped has been bludgeoned to death in recent years. I do feel like the the nostalgia that a lot of conservatives feel behind that, the idea, the way that I've described it is the idea that you could start with nothing and by your own efforts end up with something there's a housing component of that that has been part of the American experience. And I do feel like our current policies, you know, since 2005, when, when homeownership has trended downward, as you said, it feels like our policies have, have really undermined that idea that you could start with nothing and end up with something. I, well, Chuck, I think it goes back to something, something that was one of the first things we talked about in the conversation. Dynamic cities of opportunity welcome newcomers. That's a philosophical statement. That includes newcomers to the housing market. If you have policies that are totally geared towards driving up the net worth of people who already are well ensconced in home ownership, particularly in you know high-end homes, at the effect of pushing out the would-be first-time uh, buyer, and I would argue that America does that all over the place. In some of our cities, we do it to an extraordinary degree. The net result is, generally speaking, a happy outcome for the increasingly wealthy uh, you know, large scale property owner and a disastrous outcome for the aspiring uh, young person trying to sort of, you know, to actually own their first asset. So that's that that's not a path to, you know, to, to prosperous cities of opportunity. We, we we've got to create an environment that uh, rebalances things towards more opportunity for newcomers of all of all kinds. Uh, the, the, the would be small business owner, the you know, small entrepreneur, the would be uh, the uh, immigrant who has a, and would like to come into a city and make their own way. Um, the young person who would like to buy a home or whether even if they don't want to buy, they just like maybe actually like to rent in an interesting neighborhood. But that's been pushed out of out of uh, reach. Cities of opportunity are going to be places that actually care about creating more opportunities for for the vulnerable, for the new, for the not well connected 
that's what our whole program is about. We're trying to promote more of that. I realize you work for the George W. Bush Institute. The former president is, you know, a part of obviously everything that you're doing. I know he doesn't sit and look over your shoulder at what you type, but certainly this is a, a passion for him or something that he is supporting and interested in. Can we close with you just telling why? Like why why was the former president of the United States who could do so many things? Why is this a, a priority for his work? Well, you know, when he ran for president in uh, 2000, he referred to himself as a compassionate conservative. And he said that a lot. And, you know, maybe the term got sort of overused and came to have so many different meetings. The idea remains, I think, as far as I can tell, very much top of mind with him personally, with Mrs. Bush. And certainly uh, maybe as a result, it's anyone who actually wants to work there, it better be top of mind in our heads too. The, the conservative piece of that is that I think that he, he really does believe, as do those of us who work there, uh, he really does believe that private markets can work well. You know, dynamism results from individuals making their own choices, making their own kind of way in the world to a, to a reasonable degree, you know, in a very bottom-up way, not through top-down mandates. But at the same time, there is a place for compassion. Uh, there's a place for compassion in public policy. And now there's a place for compassion in society in general. It's not just it's not just about politicians. It's about the nonprofit sector and the business sector that we uh, there's a place for us to think about how to actually extend the prosperity that comes from a dynamic market economy to as many Americans as possible. I think that's close to his heart. I think that, that essentially, as far as I can tell, with President Bush, everything he's done since he left office in one form or another has been uh, living out that set of values. So I'm, I'm really thrilled to, to take that set of values and try to uh, apply it, apply those values in a very challenging space. I'm glad you and I have gotten to know each other and we're doing it together because uh, we're, we certainly are very much trying to listen a lot and learn, but, but yeah, we are finally applying a set of values and they do come from the uh, insignificant part. They, 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 they matter a lot to the man whose name is on our, on our wall. Colm Clark is the director at George W. Bush Institute, SMU Economic Growth Initiative. Uh, the report is Cities and Opportunity in 21st Century America. Go to our website, strongtowns.org, and we will have a link to that. Colm, it's always wonderful to chat with you. I, the next report, when it comes out, let me know, and, and we will do this again. I, I appreciate you taking so much time with us. I would love that. Chuck, good to be with you. Thanks so much. Hey, thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.